Hello and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, the treasurer of the committee, and today I'm delighted to be introducing the wonderful Charity Norman, talking about her book, The Secrets of Strangers. In The Secrets of Strangers, published in 2020, a gunshot rings out in a London cafe and the lives of five strangers are forever changed. Charity discusses her recent novels, her inspiration, influence and writing process. The conversation was recorded at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival, an annual weekend of wonderful writers, curious audiences and beautiful Marlborough. The festival is aimed at anyone who loves great writers and writing. If you haven't read the book before the session, you'll definitely want to afterwards. For now, please enjoy Charity Norman speaking to Tessa Nicholson. Welcome to this session of um, the Marlborough Book Festival 2021. My name's Tessa Nicholson. I'm the MC for this event with Charity Norman. I've been very excited about this one. And Charity, this <laughs> is too. her first time at the Marlborough Book Festival. She said she's in love with it. She's all over it. So Loving we're going to have it back. She's going to write some new novels so that she can come back and talk about them. Um, it's a great so, incentive. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good incentive. So you're an author of, of six novels. Um, the latest one is yes. Secrets of Strangers which, by the way, is available for sale, as is See You in um, September, outside um, in the foyer. And if you wish to copy them, uh, to buy them, Charity will be more than happy to sign them. there, And there will be time for some questions at the end of the session as well. So, Secrets of Strangers. Three hostages, one London cafe, a man on the brink with a gun, a police negotiator. Incredible story. And I gather it's based on a situation of the Napier siege where Jan Molina that's was right. involved. Yeah. That's right. Yes, that's right. I'd, um, yes, a few, when I was trying to decide what to write next and I was in a cafe talking to a friend about um, the Napier siege and she hadn't, she hadn't been there. And um, this is extraordinary. I'm sure, I'm sure many of you will remember it. 2009, remember anybody from Napier here? Well, I was there. You were there, Right. You, you, oh, really? Well, you no. will. This you you relate to this. Then. Yeah, I, we. I, I was there too. And um, in fact, we we own a house on Chaucer Road, um, which is where this event took place. And uh, Jan Molinar was our neighbour. And my husband used to chat to him over the fence, and um, you know, got to know him just a little bit. And I used to drive down that road every day and take my um, boys to school. They were supposed to be on the bicycles. They never were because you know we we're a very incompetent family. And um, still are. And um, <laughs> that particular morning, I you know, drove down to, to Napier Boys, drove back up at about 8.25. I was homeschooling my daughter at the time, and we were out in the garden. We, we didn't live in the house right next to Jan, but we were very close by, and we owned the house right next to Jan. It, had, uh, it was tenanted. And um, I heard the first gunshots, as you described, and I knew, knew what they were. You can tell, you know, at first, is that a car backfiring? Then there's more and you realise this is a gunman on the loose. And um, this went on for several, you know, for a long time. If you remember, I think it was, it was about 52 hours mm. in total. And um, what had happened was um, a policeman called Len Snee 
Senior Constable Len Snee, who was at school with my husband and all his brothers in central Hawke's Bay. It's a really small world, um, Hawke's Bay. He had visited Jan to look for cannabis plants, and Jan came home from a walk, saw the police there, lost his temper, grabbed one of his arsenal of rifles, and started shooting. He shot Len Snee dead. Len Snee lay on the pavement outside our house for the next 52 hours and they could not recover his body and, um, the, and the shooting went on and another officer was wounded, was rescued by a motorist who, driving up the street who hid him behind her car and I'd just driven up there um, and you know, then the army flew in and the, uh, you know, lots, of, lots of guys with webbing and um, we listened to these shots as you say for, for, for days and I remember thinking how tired and lonely Jan must be getting. I mean, of course he had done something terribly wrong, but he was a man. I met him, he was a human being. And I, I remember thinking, yeah, he's on his own in that house and he can't rest. And how, he must be, how must he be feeling? The negotiators were trying to talk to him. And eventually we heard that single shot, that final shot. And it sounded different. And, you know, I... I, I sensed, I knew that Jan had taken his own life, and did he had. And later I read a book by the police negotiator who'd, who felt that this was a failure. It wasn't, but he felt this failure that he hadn't been able to talk to Jan and persuade him there was something you know, left to live for. So that was quite a big experience, really. And, um, which led to which, you thinking about the book. I was thinking about it. I was telling this friend, and I was going to be writing a different book. And then I suddenly, in this cafe, I suddenly said, "Oh, I think there's a might be a book in this." And Ooh. I looked around, and I saw these people in the cafe, and I started to think, "Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? What's your story?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it occurred to me that of this crowded cafe, I didn't know anything about any of them, and any one of them, you know, might have been in that moment of crisis. And so that was when the idea came to me. You must be a very compassionate person because you do talk about, um, in an interview, I remember you saying something along the, there are few truly evil or irredeemable villains. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. Um, you did say this. Um, I, I did, and, I did, and, and I did you're say that. about Jan, you're mm. still giving him a human voice, even though what you, you admit that he, what he did was a terribly bad thing, particularly mm. for the family. Um, Absolutely, and, and it was tragic. It was a tragedy, mm. and uh, no, nothing, and nothing I say should appear to undermine that. Mm. But who will cast the first stone? Really, I mean, in, in Jan's case, um, I d we the inquest was unable to find out, you know, enough about really why Jan had gone completely nuts that mm. morning, mm. Um, and he'd made a you know an appalling mistake. And Which done is a dreadful what, thing. What happens in Secret of Strangers? Yes, yes, and, you know, yes. The protagonist, the lone gunman with a gun, he, he realises he's done a terrible thing. He does. Yeah. He is more forgivable. I mean, Jan, no. you know, Jan was really, you know, that was, but, uh, that was an appalling thing. But in, in The Secret of Strangers, the man does walk in, he does shoot somebody, and, and then a siege begins, and it's about what happens over the next 12 hours. Some of you might have read it, and... Um, an awful lot unravels and comes to light in that 12 hours and we find out what the motivations of the gunman are and we, we get to know him as a person. And he, I mean, he is a lot more forgivable. But not at the beginning. No, not at the beginning. No, no. And, it, yeah. and that's something that I love about your books and, you know, the, all six novels is that they're a slow 
evolving process that you think you know the character at the beginning, but then that character develops and there's other sides of them that come out. No more so than A Secret of Strangers, where you've got these people in a cafe, as you say, don't know each other. And then all of a sudden, their stories, and everybody has an individual story. You've got a homelessman, you've got mm. a, um, a lawyer, you've got a Rwandan refugee, yes. and then you've got a gunman, and, and then also you've got the story of, of the police negotiator. Yes. How did yes. you decide on those main <gasps> characters? Yeah, those ones. That's, that's um, always tricky because, of course, it, you know, once, you've, once you've started down the road with a character, you're kind of stuck with them for the next two years. And, and, <laughs> I don't um, like them. <laughs> you know, yeah, you don't want to cock up and, uh, or make them too like your, your own family <laughs> because you wouldn't want to be stuck with them. So, um, I, so I spent a long time thinking about that and also what would be interesting and you know, what would be the demographic and also a lot of time sitting in cafes drinking coffee, um, so, you know, which, which was a great hardship. Um, you know, looking around me at people coming and going and trying to think about their stories and who they might be. And, um, and so I tried various combinations. Um, but, it, yeah, but in the end, I was, I was happy. The, the one that changed the most or evolved was the, was the barrister. I had decided my sister is a barrister and she lives in South London and ha, is, has had the, the barrister in this story is, is going through IVF. Uh, my sister had had similar problems. So I thought it's too similar. And um, I changed her to a corporate solicitor and rewrote it and interviewed my niece who's a corporate solicitor and did the whole thing and my editor said mm, I think do you think do you think we make it back to a barrister again so and I I was actually happy to do because again I felt actually that that worked better for her um the homeless man I really wanted to write him he was actually the first and there were two influences one was um a story from the one of the the bombing in Manchester you remember where in a horrific event, and um, a one of the people who died this horrible bombing at a music concert died in the arms of a homeless guy. Who the, later there was talk about whether the story was true or not, but let's assume it was okay. Um, because who cares what the Daily Mail says? And um, yeah, <laughs> and he died in the arms. And, and I was very struck by that, the humanity of the homeless guy. They will have walked past him on their way into that concert. He'll have been sitting on the ground. It was winter, and they will have walked past him. But when the bomb went off and they were blown up, these people, and were dying, you know, one of them was in his arms when they died. But they also, at the same time, my... Um, my father, who's, who's in his 90s, very eccentric, and um, he had found um, some homeless people. Uh, and he's, you know, all his life, he's uh, spent a lot of time with, with rough sleepers one way and another. Um, and we always had a couple at our um, lunch table at Christmas. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but I'm not on the psychiatrist's couch. So uh, he had found a couple of rough sleepers at, at his church um, sleeping on the steps. And so he invited them home to his spare bedroom and they, they lived with him there for some time. And so I wanted, although I didn't know, these were very different people. I didn't, it's not their story, but I wanted to, to tell something of that story. Mm. So Neil, our rough sleeper, uh, starts the, he starts the book. He is the opening, the prologue of the book, and he wakes up on the steps of a church very close to 
um, Tuck Box Cafe. And the actual church that I was thinking of is the one where um, we'd just held my mother's funeral when I was writing. when I was writing a book. Mm. Um, the whole thing you, you just you touched on that briefly that you, you, your father was a, a minister. You mm. were born in Uganda and you came back to London to England and you ended up in, in Birmingham. Yes. Um, your mother worked at a Raman centre. You're one of seven, and. Mm. You just touched on the fact that you always had extra people at the table for Christmas, but you were also all taught that if somebody knocked on the door and needed help and they went home, you would bring them in and make them welcome. Yes. So you must yes. have met some fascinating people. Yes. I and think, heard some I, stories. I, yes, I think we did. And I think at the time when we moved from Yorkshire, which was beautiful and idyllic and gorgeous and, um, you know, lots of space in countryside, and we moved to inner city Birmingham, uh, the black country of Birmingham, and uh, it, you know, at first it was a great, it was a great shock. And where's the grass? Where are the trees and the countryside and the space? And everything smells different and looks different. But in retrospect, I'm glad we, I'm really glad. You know, mm. in retrospect, my parents were right to do that. They, 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 um, they did it um, so for, because there was more work to do there. And in retrospect, I think they were right. We, I met fascinating people from day one. And they, so the rule was... No matter how young we were, if somebody came to the door needing help, and that happened several times a day um, in one of our parishes, we we would we were to bring them in. We made sandwiches. My 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 mother worked full time, but there was always a stack of sort of sandwiches ready to to go. And um, uh, normally, somebody one of my parents would be around. My father would would uh, would talk and try and signpost people to where. They could get help, but if if he wasn't there, we were we would expect to do that as as best we could. Mm. And uh, there was one occasion where I took somebody in and, and gave him a sandwich and chatted for a bit. And later we discovered he was a recidivist sex offender, <laughs> preying on preying on preying on young girls. And I was about nine at the time, but um, he never laid a finger on me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess and were you concerned about that in later life? What I, was wrong with I you? I think he was dis yes, I was. I thought, oh no, I think he was distracted by the cheese sandwiches, probably. Right? Um, so you, you've had such a, an, an eventful life. You know, you, you've done a lot of travel. You've been barrister. You, you've grown up in this amazing family. You've immigrated out mm -hmm. to New Zealand with with your three children. But what do you think has had the most influence on your writing out of all of those? You know, the family, mm -hmm. the missionary work, the the social work, the travel. Um. That's really the most influence of all. That's a really good question. I, you know, I really think, and I did touch on this yesterday, I think um, I'd, that time in Birmingham was, was pretty important. I mean, we had, when we lived in Yorkshire, I had become obsessed with the Bronte sisters because we, I was one of seven living in a vicarage in the wild, sort of near the moors, and so were they, and they all died, and uh, we didn't, but, uh, well, uh, you know, can't have, can't have everything. Um, <laughs> um, or, or, or in fact, a couple, couple of my siblings later sort of did meet with accidents, but... Um, and, and so I used to run around the, the moors making up terrible poetry and uh, awful poetry. And um, one day I was in York Minster writing this appalling poem about the rose window, which some of you will have seen was, um, later was destroyed. It was a, um, uh, a, a lightning bolt. But anyway, uh, I was writing a poem and a lovely kind nun came up. And she said, what are you doing? And I showed her my poem. And she, I was seven, I think. 
and she printed it in the York Minster magazine. So that was my first published work. And thankfully lost to posterity, because I'm sure it was utter garbage. You know, really embarrassing. Um, but, I, but, but when we got to Birmingham... I. It was the listening. So I, I, yeah, my parents listened. They held this, this self-help group for people with mental health problems, which I talked about yesterday. And so I heard, I used to listen to that. I shouldn't have, but I did. And so I heard them, you know, this constant um, talking about feelings of how people are doing and people at the extremes of their lives. And I used to sit on the bus and listen to conversations. And um, I became obsessed with communication. I realized that, People were so lonely. I mean, I, yes, I was lonely. I was a lonely child. And I, but I would listen, and I realized quite early on that people were lonely, were trying to tell... that they would, I would hear somebody trying to tell her friend what was what happening in her home or something, and I'd hear the friend not really listening, and I'd hear them having two separate conversations. And I, I wanted to get involved. I wanted to turn around and say, no, can you tell, tell me about it? And so I became really on quite obsessed with, with reaching out and either listening or, or, or passing on some story. Well, as humans, you, you've said we, we are the most developed um, species on the planet. You know, we have a language, but we don't, that doesn't necessarily mean that we communicate. No, no, it doesn't. No, and you would have found right. that in your work as a lawyer, wouldn't you? Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of the... Um, uh, the a lot of the difficulties which you know the people I worked with, both in criminal and family law, would not occurred have occurred or could have been lessened. You know, had there been, um, had everybody been better at, at communicating and at listening. I mean, it's such a cliche, isn't it? Communication is the key. Mm. But in in that line of work, it really is. I mean, the family law in particular, you wanted to bang so often. You know, bang heads. <laughs> particularly in the um, and one of my earlier books the son-in-law is is about this it's about a man hits his wife uh, which is entirely wrong I don't obviously recommend that um, but as she as she falls she hits her head and she's killed and the story and he does time he's in prison in Leeds for some years and the story is about when he comes out and should he have um, should he be a father to his children or and has he crossed that line all. at all yes and mm. Um, and that was sort of inspired by uh, families I came across who who would sort it out if only they would talk and if only they would communicate. Mm. So it is, yes, it is hugely important and is that, to me. I, I think I came up with Branavan yesterday. Sometimes good people do bad things. Yes. Yeah. And you, that redemption, that idea of redemption is really important if you could just... Bring yourself to that. Yes. Your, your writing process, your characters are, are quite fascinating. Um, and I read something that you, you had written, and it was about that the process, you know, you might catch a character, might be just out the corner of your eye, and then, then other bits and pieces of their personality come to you, and even down to the point that you actually are searching through their pockets or their desk drawers <laughs> or their handbags for the detritus of what's in those to give you their personality. Yes. That sounds like a lot of work. Yes, <laughs> yes, it is a lot of work. The characterisation is a lot of work. And the book, in my process, and I'm sure other people do it much more easily and, and, and much quicker, but I, I'd find the book doesn't take it life and start to breathe and feel three-dimensional um, until the characters have become quite real. And... 
that at first, I, yes, as you say, I have the concept, have the idea, oh, you know, a Rwandan nurse, a refugee from Rwanda. Mm. And, and that's, the, that's the idea, but she's not yet Mutesi. She's not yet a person. And so I, um, I begin to, to get to know them. I begin to think about, I try to think about um, the Jahari window. I don't know if you've ever come across that. The Jahari window is... Um, in one corner, you've got things people know about themselves. They've got lots of people nodding. Mm. Things people know about themselves, but nobody else knows. They know about themselves and everybody knows. And um, that things about them that other people can see and they can't see themselves. And then things nobody knows, I think it is. Mm. And so I, I, I use this. And it's, I find this because we, we, we all have those things, don't you? There's, there's things about everybody, all of you, you and you and you. And you, <laughs> uh, that that we know about ourselves, and we and we don't want others to know, or mm. we don't, uh, or we don't sort of go about revealing. And conversely, there's a lot which others can see in us, and we do either don't want to see in ourselves, or or actually don't know, and so on. So I I start to fill in those those windows. When so I'm do you do about this them. before you've even started writing? Very often. And I'll even do does it. the plot develop because you've done that with your characters? Uh, t uh, the plot, they, they, the plots are character driven, but, um, I've normally got a synopsis. I've got some concept of mm. what the role that the sort of story arc of that character will be. So it may change to some degree what, how the plot goes on, but normally I do have that, that arc. And I'll, so I'll start with this, but as the book is written, the first draft is going on, the color is added. The, the dimensionality of it is added and, 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 and I may go through their pockets. And that's quite a useful exercise <laughs> is to, is to look in about um, what we've got in our pockets at the <laughs> yeah. moment. I mean, mine, are mine are full of garbage, you know, mine are full of old bus tickets and, and, and so on uh, as I'm chaotic. And um, so I will, I'll think about, you know, what have they got? So often, you know, what it's they've fixing. got in there, what, what is Baggins's got in his pockets is, does with it all their drawer, their desk drawer, and, you know, think about what's in your desk yeah, or, a, yeah. or your handbag. I mean, I mean, mine is like Mary Poppins, but without the magic. <laughs> um, and these things, they, they, so, they, they say so much about the inner life mm. of that person. And I once think. you've got that, you feel like you're then at one with the character. I'm beginning to, to really get to know them. That's so do right. they ever overlap or do they ever actually take over your mind? Um, yes, they do. They I go a bit funny towards the end. So I, I, um, there are many drafts in the first draft and the second. There's more colour. There's more colour, and I'm, at the same time, I'm ironing and flattening the the prose, you know, to take out the seams and the the the, the repetitions and the extra mm -hmm. adjectives. But at the same time, it's becoming more. I, in my mind, probably not for my poor readers, but um, more and more real. And um, there's a time towards the end where um, I'm doing what may be the final edit after it's been to the publishers and back. And I often go to a place by myself to do that. Um, my, my, um, my family get in the way, you know, I love them dearly, but you know, if you've got somebody and you hear their feet clattering up the stairs and you know they're gonna come and ask for their socks and you want to kill them. <laughs> And that's my husband. I mean, that's... <laughs> bloody Norse wear socks. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and you... you and I, I really get, you know, you, you, feel your, you feel your back straight, your spine mm. going, and, and you start to think, I could, he, could he manage without me? Anyway, so I... Um, 
so I tend to take myself off and um, see you in September, which is this book about a cult. You know, this, all these um, really increasingly weird, and it starts normal and becomes stranger and stranger. And um, I did that final edit of that. A friend lent me her beach batch up on the cliffs up above Hawke's Bay. And you're looking out. So you look out the front and you just see the sea rolling away. But it's in the middle of nowhere. It's up a long, 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 you go through a gate and up through farmland. So I was there for a week. I took um, my own coffee, a bag of coffee, and you know, all my own food. And I didn't see another human being for a week. But you did talk to the sheep. But I talked to the sheep and, and, the, and the odd, the odd um, container ship creeping along the horizon. And I go out and go, oh, human beings, hello. <laughs> the world could have ended. You wouldn't <laughs> have known. I would known. I did talk to the sheep. There was a donkey. But by the end of the week, the characters had, be- had become so real. And you dream about them. And also, but I went a bit really weird, even weirder. And I started to think, oh, I must, I must. I must tidy up. I must. I must do this. I must sweep the floor because that's the rules in the cult. Oh, in the book. And, and you then yeah. took on Cassie's yeah. character. I became a bit inculcated in my own personal cult. <laughs> it was a pretty hard time for you writing that because you had actually just suffered breast cancer. You, I had breast cancer. And your mother died of Alzheimer's. Gosh, that's amazing. Yes, that's true. Yes, while I was going through that process, um, yeah, complicated. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so I. I um, I'm trying to, and Donald Trump got in as well. Eh? Um, that was better to talk to the sheep. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Even they were thinking to be. Yes, it was. You know, which as it was, I, uh, it, it, it was, um, I thought it would be an easy book to write. It was difficult anyway because there were so many different characters. I'm a vicar's daughter and I was essentially writing a, actually Ooh. about loss of faith. I mean, I, I, I was in the Napier Cathedral Choir at the time. People say, how do you write about cults? I was in the Napier Cathedral Choir at the time and, um, you know, l- listening to a lot of sermons and, and, and a lot of sort of obsessive, you know, behaviour. Mm. And, and I was diagnosed in May with um, breast cancer while I was waiting for, you know, some of you will have been through this. You, know, you wait for your results and you wait for your, you know, biopsy and all this. And you think, am I going to die? Is my funeral? You know, what do children are still young? What do I do? And then whilst waiting, um, my mother, who had been going downhill a long time, was getting, um, she was starting to get um, infections, you know, um, pneumonia. Yeah. And I knew that because I, I worked with um, people in this situation, I knew that that was probably going to be the end. But my siblings didn't seem to get it. And I kept saying, I think I better come over. And they said, oh, no, no, she's fine. Anyway, eventually um, I realised that time was really short and so I was um, able to get a flight and I got to Hong Kong where I was changing planes and the phone rang and she died. So didn't, I didn't make it, but it's all right because she wouldn't have, you know, she would, probably wouldn't have known me. But that was all going on oh, while I was Which is actually interesting because book. in see you in September, there's, you know, the, you've got Cassie who's in the cult. She's come out to New Zealand for a holiday and she ends up in, in this cult. And Diana, her mother, is back in England desperately trying to find, get a way to come back. So yes. it's kind of like you're desperately trying to get back to your mother who's yes. dying. And the book is about a mother who's desperately trying to get her child back. Well, I suppose, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's something going on there. Actually, the other, while I, the other thing while I was writing it, which probably feeds into this, is that um, my daughter, who was then uh, 17, um, she left home at 15. She went um, traveling into Argentina as an exchange, but she went back at 17. 
And um, she was backpacking through Colombia alone, um, oh. through Colombia and through South America for, for months and months. And um, she's very courageous. I did the same thing at the same age, so I, I, couldn't, you know, I couldn't argue or complain. Um, but Colombia at that time was a pretty uh, dodgy place. There were some um, kidnappings and um, murders for, for, for um, Rats, I mean, yeah. organs and various mm -hmm. other things. Um, and so when, you know, on Facebook, when somebody's writing, you can see the little green wiggly line mm -hmm. and she would disappear for days at a time because she was out of out of range. Um, and I, I would look for the green wiggly line appearing on Facebook. And I, I think she's that means she's alive. But, but I, I always thought she might be going to be writing. I'm in the boot of somebody's car. <laughs> <laughs> so you could really relate to Diana. So I could relate to Diana. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I knew what you know, that sense of being utterly helpless. If she were in the boot of somebody's mm. car or in a cult, although they'd be they, if they got my daughter into the cult, they'd regret it. But because uh, you know she, she'd 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 soon be leading it. But um, you know there is that that, that sense of you know, helplessness. What would I do? How could I? How could oh. I help? How can I? You know, we're used to being able to help our, our the people we love, aren't we? You know, it's some in some way we can it's normally a, do something. Yeah. And it's a helpless situation when you can't. It's a helpless situation mm. when you can't. Mm, yeah. That's right. So, one of the things that I know you did with the Secret of Strangers, which was intriguing to me, was that you actually trawled the internet for photos of people that looked the way you imagined your characters, and you had this. You, you call it quite creepy. A big whiteboard of, <laughs> yes. you know, this is Neil and, and this is Abby and this is Buddy the dog. <laughs> Was yes. it helpful? So helpful. You've never done that before? Um, I, uh, what was the previous book? Um, yes, I, well, with my, um, my previous book was a book about a woman transitioning and I, I had a photo on my, um, uh, on my um, screensaver of an actor of whom I'm very fond. He's in, um, he is in the Sherlock Holmes, the BBC version of Sherlock Holmes. And my son came and said, Mum, you know, have you got a crush on him? Like, what are you doing? And, and it was because this, that, that, <laughs> this person looked like my character and, I, and that's how I, um, how I drew them. When it came to see you in September, I extended that and I've done it ever, I did it again with my last book. So I, it is creepy. So I look through. And I find they may not be actors, they may just be photos mm. or whoever. Mm. And you'd be looking through and you suddenly think, it's her. Oh, it's, oh my God, it's her. And so I would, I print it out, I cut it out and I put it on the board and I have my cast there. Charles Dance was my cult leader. Charles Dance, the actor. As Justin? As Justin, mm. yeah. Um, and sometimes they change slightly from that, but... Um, it's really, it's it's really helpful because you. I can imagine there that you're looking at a person, them. you then get the characteristics, and you're seeing that that person is actually now real, yes. not just a yes. figment of your imagination. Yes, yes, it gives you all kinds of nuance, and it keeps you in touch. If you get, you come down to, and you unroll it. I actually came to um, one of the stages, one of the many iterations of that. We'd come down to Nelson where my husband was working on a woodworking course, and we'd taken an, uh, an Airbnb for two weeks. So I took it with me my piece of paper and I unrolled it and stuck it on the wall of my Airbnb in Nelson. And, and did they come in and it. clean and think that you had a very uh, weird fascination or something? They must have, I was completely off my head. <laughs> but, you know, that was fairly accurate. So. You, um, you call yourself the most disorganised, chaotic person in the world mm. to the point that you turned up in court in London in mismatched shoes. Yeah. Were you pregnant? 
Because, I mean, I've done that when I've been pregnant. <laughs> but my excuse was I couldn't see my shoes. But I think that you turned up actually to court with mismatched shoes. My because... pregnancies were probably due to chaos as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's three in three years. I mean, what's going on there? Um, yeah, the mismatched shoes. Now I wasn't pregnant. There's no excuse. No, no, no. I mean, it doesn't. And it, you know, I had endless opportunities to make um, make a, a twit of myself in, in court. Have we got... Have we got We've got three minutes for a yeah, go for, for it. A, endless opportunities. I mean, I, there were so many; it's hard to know which to um, which to pick from. But I remember um, very early on in my career when my wig was still very white. You know, um, my my clerk sent me to um, to St Albans, which in fact one of the characters is on her way to. And uh, he said to me, Miss Norman, tomorrow morning you're going to be in court one at um, at, at ten o'clock. And then you, you're, and you've got an appeal against sentence, and then you're going to be in, in court two for several smaller cases at eleven o'clock. And I said, you know, that's you can't make me. You don't don't do that to me because if I'm held, an appeal against sentence is a full hearing. You know, in front of a, it's an appeal from the magistrates' court in front of a judge and two lay magistrates. Got nodding, so you know. I said, you know, that could take two hours, and I'll be late into court two, and the judge in court two. Um, her honour judge Rottweiler literally eats <laughs> well I think she was for judge Velociraptor actually yeah, Velociraptor, she, right, she, what I thought it was. literally eats young barristers for, you know she, I can't do it you know, have you seen her nails and, and he said no 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 Miss Norman Miss Norman they called me Miss Norman to my face Chazza to my back Miss Norman he says you'll be absolutely fine because the first case on in court two is a seven-handed murder, which means there were seven different barristers. It's going to take ages and ages. You've got plenty of time. Trust me, he said. So I go on, off I go. So I'm in court one. I'm doing my appeal against sentence. My client was guilty, but he, nobody was, it seemed to be, you know, he was appealing his conviction. Well, I don't know if he was guilty or not, but there was an awful lot of evidence. And, um, so I, I fought valiantly, but quickly. <laughs> I was very frightened indeed. And, um, and, and uh, the prosecutor was talking so slowly and it was so awful and time was going on and on. I was sort of starting to sweat. And then at the end, the judge said, um, well, my colleagues and I will now get up to consider our verdict. And I said, no, my client's clearly guilty. Like, just, <laughs> just, just convict the bastard and let me get into it. <laughs> so up he gets and off they go, you know, for their coffee. And I'm sitting there, so like, oh, I'm so, and, uh, you know, and, and, and my wig was, your wig is really hot and it's, it's terrible for your hair. That's another subject. <laughs> and, and, and so on, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And, um, uh, and, and then I can hear their footsteps coming back. And at that moment, I saw a sight to freeze the blood in the veins of any junior barrister. And that was the clerk from court two. And she was standing in the doorway going, you're wanted in court two. No, my, my career is literally in tatters. It's over. I'm probably going to be sent to the cells. And, um, and at that moment, the, the judge and the lay magistrates came back in. And they sat down, and um, to my astonishment, they they let, they found my client not guilty. <laughs> so fabulous for him. So he sprang from the dock without a stain on his character, and I tried to go as well. But as I looked around, I realised that like, it was a raised days sort of thing arrangement round a table at St Albans, and to my right there were two elderly barristers with wigs sort of the colour of nicotine. I've, one of them, I think, was already dead. The other was, 
they're always fast asleep. I mean, I couldn't ask them to move. They were waiting for the next case. And to my left, there were, there was, there were these, 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 these women who, my sister's like one of them now. She's a QC. They, they were just terrified. I couldn't ask them to move. It'd be like asking Kim Hill to move, you know? Like, I, <laughs> I wasn't going to, I couldn't do it. And so there was only one, uh, one possibility left to me. And, um, I had lived in New Zealand. I'd been aroused about in a shearing gown briefly and, and catastrophically, but I had been. And so, um, I thought, well, I can jump over the, I can, I can leap over the back of the chair of the seat behind me, this bed. So I put my hand, put my hands on the back and I did. I, I, I leapt gracefully over the top. As I did so, two things happened. First, I realized what I failed to appreciate, which was that it was a six foot drop behind me. It was on a raised platform behind the bench. Second, my gown caught on the upright to the top of the bench. So, so, so I was suspended upside down. Like, <laughs> with, my, with my gown and my skirt like hanging down. The, 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 and I, I, I don't know how long my fruit bat impersonation lasted before, before my gown tore and I sort of tumbled unceremoniously to the floor. And I'm standing up and I'm picking up my, my books and I'm trying to look very dignified. And, but it's, it's, it's quite difficult to uphold the, you know, the majesty of the, of, the, of the English legal system when the, you know, the judge, the two lay magistrates, the court clerk, the lady at the, and all the people in the gallery and the five Italian drug dealers who have just been called into the dock. <laughs> have all seen your knickers. <laughs> How was Judge Velociraptor, though, by the time you got to her? Uh, thankfully, I wasn't wearing a thong. Um, she, uh, uh, I mean, it was, it, was, it was just terrifying. Somebody had kindly kept her talking. You know, so so when I got, I sort of come scoffing and kind of put my wig on straight and come up again, and and I survived to I survived to live another day. I can see why you immigrated to New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you say it was because your kids had never seen you, but you were embarrassed about your knickers. (laughs) It was it was one of many occasions when yes, either the knickers or some other disaster. But uh, as as the years go on, you sort of your wig gets less white and your waist gets less waist like, and 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 you know, eventually the day comes when judges start to look quite hot and then you then you realize that you've been at it too long (laughs) (laughs) it's like when policemen and doctors are far too young and you realize you've become old yes yes exactly 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 that that. you why did you choose New Zealand I mean your husband's New Zealand I take it my husband is a New Zealander Mm. yes he's a um I met him uh when we were both uh, I was in the Sahara desert he was oh please story meet him under a lorry in the Sahara is that right (sighs) I need the story. I'm so romantic, this story. Oh, oh my God. Please tell us. So, so, so. <laughs> she wants to tell us. <laughs> Pour more wine. So. Um, <laughs> I'm sick for the afternoon. <laughs> so I had lived in, I was born in Africa, and I had lived in Malawi when I was 18. And, um, and I'd seen these lorries come through, you know, these overland lorries and uh, their Bedford trucks. And I thought, oh, they're appalling. They're just people just shagging their way across Africa. I'll never go on one of them. I'm a serious traveller. Anyway, a few years later, I was on this Bedford truck. Shaking your way across Africa. Shaking my way across Africa. I had a broken love of... I'd, I was already um, uh, qualified. Yes, I was. I was qualified as a barrister. Um, and uh, But I'd had a broken love affair with um, uh, a man called Charles. And I... Um, 
I decided that I, I'd, in fact, we got back together, but by then I'd already decided to go on this lorry, you see. And so I just jumped aboard, really. And um, it, was going, it was heading from London to Cape Town. It was an 18-year-old, you know, British Army Bedford truck. And um, I thought, well, I'll just take it across the desert and then I'll, I'll make my own way. I'll hitch my own way after that. Um, so I got on board this Bedford truck and we set out and we set off across Europe and across... And then we got into the Sahara Desert, and I had spent a bit of time chatting with the mechanic. And, um, you know, he is kind of cute, and, and he um, wasn't at all like, um, you know, anything my mother would have expected me to bring home. And didn't, he didn't speak Latin and, um, uh, um, or Hebrew. And, um, and, and, and he wore his overalls, he was covered in oil, and he had his tool belt and and we burst I think we burst nine tires just crossing France and Spain for this was a really old truck I mean this this um this company was later closed down somebody died at the end of our trip and the following year the owner of the company died on the trip it was a shower but anyway the um this gorgeous mechanic and so he had this lovely accent and so we got chatting a lot in in the Sahara and I remember asking him where are you from and he said why (laughs) Pukara And I said, no, there's no West. Nobody, nowhere is called Waipukarau. But indeed, um, this was Tim Meredith. As, uh, if any of you from Wai- from Central Hawke's Bay? There were some, yeah, you are. There, right. Well, yeah, there were some, several yesterday. And um, the Meredith family, I mean, if you, if you um, shot a shotgun down the main street of Waipukarau, you would hit a Meredith. <laughs> they're, they're, they're literally everywhere. And uh, so, you know, it's a bit like shopping, isn't it? You know, you go and they look lovely in the shop and then you get them home. <laughs> I've never heard that analogy before, but yeah, yeah, I'll go with that one. Because the Sahara is so romantic. Like, you, you, we were sleeping out under the stars, separately, of course. <laughs> and, and you... And the, you know, you, I can understand why the three great desert religions grow, are desert religions, because out there, there is a great sense of, of something enormous. You know, I suppose it is, it's, it, it's, it is enormous, it's the Sahara Desert, but you're on this enormous flat plain with a circular horizon, and you wake up in the morning, it's just you and the embers of the fire, mm. and, um, and the... the when the sun rose in the morning in the Sahara, there was green flame creeping over the edge of the horizon as the stars paled and this cold wind. And it was romantic, you know? Anyway, I married him. Long story short, years later, um, my, uh, we wore my mother down. And um, eventually I married him and we, we stayed. He, at that stage, wasn't keen to come back to Waipukarau, um, having run from it. Um, <laughs> he didn't, you know, didn't particularly, he wanted to stay in, in England, in fact. But after 15 years of practice as a barrister, in which time we had the three children and he was the house husband, he brought them up. And the time came when um, it occurred to both of us that these children didn't know me. In retrospect, they would have done better if they had never got to know me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there you go. So you actually swapped roles in. You came to New Zealand and you gave up that, that, the barrister yeah. lifestyle. And, yeah. and Tim went out and worked and you became a house mum. What was I thinking? Yeah, I, I, just, I, I was thinking, was that tough yeah. from what you'd been doing? Intelligent conversation, going to children. <laughs> I mean, you know, 
Central Hawke's Bay has... You know, I didn't mean that. I meant being a house mum. <laughs> being yeah, a house mum, yes. Yeah, no, yeah. I know what you mean. I, I did have to explain to my other mother they don't wear grass skirts. Um, yeah, you know, that was a big change. And you know, uh, as I've, I've said before, it was almost literally Newcastle Crown Court one minute and on, on a play centre the next. And, we, um, and they were lovely to me at on, on a play centre. They gave me the Edmunds cookery book. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, uh, it's you know, a rite and, of passage. And they, they patted my hand and, and said I would be all right and I would manage because I think from their point of view I was just deeply incompetent and I and I was. Um, I, 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 I I am glad I did it. It was the right decision in Wretch, but it, but it, but nothing goes quite as you. Uh, I think one of the loveliest expect. stories is when you went to go get your school uniform for yes. one of the children and they gave you a pattern. <laughs> and material, and you had to then turn around and make a uniform. Unbelievable. I remember I was trying to organise a school, and yes, I, I, I was talking in advance up to the school, you know, right, you're going to come, the children are going to go to school. Where do I get the uniform? Oh, they said, um, you can get the pattern from uh, the school and you can get the fabric in Mr. Story's shop. I was like, do you, are you, well, you mean what? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it was it was it was just terrifying this concept of um, of that they that I was expected to be able to make this uniform. My mother-in-law grew; her, she didn't just not buy the jar of stuff that you pour over your mints to make bolognese. She grew her own tomatoes and you know bottled and did the whole thing. And so, you know, I had to, I did learn to. I did better as time you, went you, on. You were, you were obviously a very intelligent person. You've done a lot of a lot of stuff, you know, in your life. And it, it must have made you feel quite incompetent. Well, it did I mean I and remember you know, a great sort of like yes shop to yourself. Yes, who yes Who's you confidence? have yes who exactly that's true because the the thing that defines you or which you have allowed to define you mm. is no longer there at all. It's completely removed. The props have been completely removed from under you. You are not that person. There, you. I have my wig and gown in my bag, but I haven't put them on. I don't. You know, and you've spent years <laughs> very developing that, isn't it? You know, you've spent years developing that. Persona. Yes, yes, that's true. You, you have. You've trained. You've done it. You spent fifteen years practicing. You have a practice. Mm. You know. You. I, I. 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 It was a good career. It was a really good career, and and I and I gave it away. Why did I do that? See, I'm thinking about it now. Why did I? And you gave it away, and and suddenly you are you are expected to be somebody else. I remember early on being invited to lunch with friends, and um, we had to bring a plate. And I did know I was supposed to put something on the plate. And I, did, I, you know, I, did, I did know that. But she said, bring a plate with finger food. And I didn't know what that meant. And I, I remember saying to my mother-in-law, who was still living with us at the time, we moved into her house so that she was going to move to town, you know, and it was farming, family. And, um, I said, I've got finger food plate. And she said, don't worry, Edmund's cookbook, page 62, coconut chocolate brownies. Even you can manage this. <laughs> Even you. So how wrong she was. So, <laughs> so I went into her pantry. She had a pantry. I mean, anyway, she went into, I went into the pantry and um, I started trying to make those eggs flying everywhere. And there's flour and I was covered in flour and some chocolate coconut powder and cocoa. Everywhere. And, you know, 40 minutes later, I'm in tears and there's burnt, a pile of burnt coconut, whatever they were. It didn't even look like anything. I'm sure her oven, there was something weird. I think she bewitched it actually. But anyway... <laughs> So um, there's me, and she came in, and she gently led me out. She said, don't worry, you go and have your shower. Go and have your shower and get changed. It'll be all right. I'll sort it out. So I come out from my, you know, sh- having de 
cocoa powdered myself. And she's whisked up a beautiful pile of coconut chocolate brownies. And on top of them, she's a Hawke's Bay woman. Oh, yes, she's a Hawke's Bay. I'll tell you about that in a minute. She's a Hawke's Bay woman. And, and, and on top of it, she's put the rose from her garden because all Hawke's Bay women, are, are mobile women, say, all Hawke's Bay women, certainly back then, you know, had a beautiful garden. I bulldozed it later. And, and she... Um, <laughs> Yeah. We, we got on really well and she covered it with um, cling film and, and, and she gave it to me to take so, so, I, so I, I was off to the car to get into the car and I gave the, um, I gave the plate with the brownies on to Tim and I went to get in the driver's seat my mother-in-law came marching over <laughs> all five foot of her and um, she said no, no that's not how we do it think about that pronoun she said that's not how we do it he drives you hold the plate. Oh, oh it's a bit and of a culture shock. Yeah, I said, have I taken the emasculation of your son too far? And she said, no, I think it's gone quite far enough. <gasps> what, I mean, what is Tim's side of this? <laughs> well, I think he found it all quite amusing. I mean, later she claimed to be tongue-in-cheek, but I'll tell you what, she wasn't. You know? you know, she said, oh, I was joking when I, when I wrote about it in Next magazine. Oh, I was joking. Oh, I don't, not, not, not. Anyway, get in the car and I'm trying, we're driving along. Tim's driving and, and, and I couldn't even hold the plate properly. And he went round to corner, the whole lot went onto the floor and I'm <laughs> scrabbling to put it back on and the cling film wilted and the flower died and everything. Why are there always coins and dog hair on the floor of a car? Even, even when you haven't got a dog. And I took it to the party and nobody asked me for the recipe. <laughs> not one. Did anybody eat it? Actually, they did. <laughs> they did. I, 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 to my, to my, so I think uh, it, well, that once they'd taken it and put it in their mouths, they couldn't they do anything put, about put it. it out. Hawks Bay women don't spit it out. Um, okay, one question that I'm really intrigued: you're related to Virginia Woolf. Girl, you have done your research, and I'm impressed. I am related to Virginia. This Woolf. is so amazing. Yes. She's just like one of the greatest authors of the 20th yes. century yes so yes. tell us tell us this relationship well um she she is my cousin um my great something grandmother is julia margaret cameron who any photographers among you will have heard of you can look her up um julia margaret cameron was a, a, a sort of a groundbreaking victorian photographer and friends Whoa. with you know darwin and people like that that she's um the, you know the uh, great coleridge and whoever um and uh she was um of the of the family of Virginia Woolf they were um they both came from five sisters the Pattle sisters who had all um originally um been based for decades or for uh for generations in India is um, they were colonial they were I'm sorry they were the Raj they were mm. they were <laughs> um and uh so so we were all descended from from these same ones so so my ancestor and, and her were first cousins. So we, we're first cousins. Have you always known that? Or did you find it out later? Uh, yes, no, I, I always knew it. And, and we share, um, Virginia, of course, we share ancestors, mm. um, Virginia. Yes, no, absolutely, because there are photos of her around and oh, um, right. because we've got Julia Margaret Cameron's photographs. Many of them are in museums and art galleries, but we've still got some. And um, so a lot of the same. And, and, and in fact, our family, in some of Wolf's... Um, Sisters' work. I think our family does does get does mentioned. Get mentioned. Um, so we share some ancestors, and um, she was very proud of her what she called her Bengali eyes, because she and I share a, an ancestor. The time of um, 
of uh, the French Revolution, or just before, not long before, there was a man called Chevalier de Tang, who was a French cavalier. And uh, he was in the court of uh, Marie Antoinette, Antoinette and was said to have become too friendly with her. And so to save himself, really, um, he agreed to go to India, where he, he, he presumably took his horse. He was a cavalier. And there he met and fell in love with um, a young local woman who was, um, he met presumably in some court or other, and a Bengali woman. And uh, 13 generations later is me, but she, and, and Virginia Woolf and I both come from that ancestry. So, it's, so we've both got the Pondicherry... Oh, that's so she talks about her Pondicherry eyes. That's it, her Pondicherry eyes. So, because you knew you were related to her, and she is such a mm. you know a, of, a tour de force in, mm. in 20th century writing, did you find yourself following her, reading her? Mm. I mean, or were you influenced by that relationship? I, I suppose subconsciously, you think um, you, you, you you perhaps it helps you very slightly to think if that you could be somebody who might want to write, you know, mm. that it's there. But there's an awful lot of um, other people I might have wanted to be like. And, and so, I, I, no, I, mean, I mean, Virginia Woolf is so, she's Virginia Woolf. Oh. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't sort of think, oh, I want to be like Virginia Woolf. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's probably asking a bit oh, too much. Yeah. So, no, I think it was, it was there as an overarching influence that this is, this is a part of who I am. Oh. And interesting, you've got a brother who writes as well, Norman. I have got a brother, Stephen Norman. Mm, mm. Yes, he was um, less gloriously, he was director at the Royal Bank of Scotland, and that, well, that didn't end well. It collapsed, ca collapsed catastrophically, but um, not, he wasn't that kind of director. Um, he, yeah, he has written uh, a thriller, and another one I believe is on the way. Yes, oh. his first thriller was... Um, uh, really, very, very readable. Stephen Norman. Mm, Stephen Norman. So you're obviously quite creative as a family. You know, you've got you've got the relationships with you know with creative people in the past. But the fact that two out of the seven of you are writers is that's interesting. That's true. And for Stephen, it's been something he's come to in retirement. Um, yes, and I and I have another brother who was um, Gumboot in Private Eye magazine. Which is um, really? I don't, it's just, you, you probably I don't know if you get. I get it here sometimes. It's a satirical yeah. magazine, yeah. and uh, yes, he's Gumboot, the agri was the agricultural correspondent. Not a lot of people know that. Oh. <laughs> Are you working on something now? I am. I've got a. Um, I'm due to deliver uh, by the twenty second the rewritten, redrafted um, version of my next book, which should be out early next year. How does that feel? Like a lot of work still to do. Oh, right. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but it's, it's nice to be getting towards the end of that process. Although you'll then, my agent always says that I should have my next book written before the previous one comes out. And yeah. so there's always that, that sort of, <gasps> that stress to try and come up with something else. So although I'm enjoying feeling this is coming towards him there's a lot you know there's still more to do there's, so you've got to go up to the um, to the hut with the sheep i might go to the hut with the sheep mm. yes or i might um i might find somewhere to go or, or yeah. you could send tim and the children to the hut with the sheep <laughs> yes, and you could stay at home <laughs> with your own coffee machine <laughs> i could yes all the children are all largely elsewhere so mm. it's not so not so difficult and in fact tim has um has now 
built uh, another, another, easily at the moment, for complicated reasons, living in a little wooden hut himself, and we're both in it, you know, the two of us sharing a, a space the size of this stage. But um, because that's really difficult to, um, to be in such close proximity, he's built me another little outdoor hut where I can go and, where I can go and work. <laughs> so I, I spend a lot of time in there. <laughs> well, it's been absolute pleasure. Um, but the questions, I'm sure there are heaps of questions from, from the audience today. Oh, come, come on. on. She's answered everything. <laughs> Is there a particular of your books, the six, that you feel more um, aligned to personally? I mean, mm. The Fall or, you know, Second Chances, which is actually a couple who have immigrated from England. Yes. So it seems to be a little bit of your, your, your story. It's two boys and a girl, which is exactly what, you know, you hear. Oh, true. Mm. When, when Stephen Hawking was asked which, which, you know, was it relativity or, or, or um, whatever would he choose, you know, which theory, um, he said, that is like asking me which of my children I would sacrifice. And, and I feel slightly like that when asked, mm. you know, which of, my, which of my books, because each of them, well, each, they take a long time to write and you pour, you know, at the time, you're completely absorbed in each yeah. one, you pour so much into it. I, I um, the, the, the sort of standout in terms of, um, the effect it's had would be um, The New Woman, The Secret Life of Luke Livingston in New Zealand, which many people, which you know, isn't um, so readily available now. It was before. It's on Kindle. It's on Kindle and it is actually available. And BT and Forbes in Napier stock it and the publishers have still got it and it's available in other countries. Um, but this, but is, this a, is based also on, you were, you were a counsellor for the Lifeline and uh, actually yes. you worked or counselled counselled with a transgender woman. I did, that's right. I did uh, for a long time Lifeline, which is similar to Samaritans. And in fact, I've just redone um, the Samaritans training to, to keep up that training. And uh, I was a supervisor and, and one of the people I was working with in training was, was a transgender woman. And a lot of our callers were as well. And also my father was um, in the army with and good mates with and godfather to the children of James Morris, who became Jan Morris. So mm. I grew up, you know, with yeah. that, knowing mm. it, was, it wasn't a thing. Mm. It was just what, it was something I was aware of growing mm. up. Um, so when I was thinking about what to write next, um, that came to mind. And, um, but my, and I really wanted to write it. And my, my colleague at Lifeline, when she heard I was thinking of writing it, uh, she, she seemed very excited because uh, I, she said, what are you going to write next? I think I'm thinking of doing something about, um, the, uh, about gender dysphoria. And when I got home, she'd written me an email and she had attached to it a story, a newspaper cutting um, about a helicopter pilot who was a man who had been killed when his Robinson R-22 crashed. Um, yeah. And it was a tragic story. And I read it, but I thought, this is very odd. How does she know? Because my brother was killed when his R-22 helicopter crashed in very similar circumstances. I thought, how do you know? I never mentioned that. I have just mentioned it to you. But then I realized, no, that's not, she didn't know. That wasn't it. What, she, what the story was that this person who was being reported as male had been a woman for decades mm. and it had been reported differently. And so she said to me, Charity, do write your story and please tell my story and please help people to understand that we're not a figure of fun, we're not a drag queen, we're not mad. We are real people with a real contribution to make to society. And so, in your book, you actually you portray that 
you tell that story of the of the pilot because there is a there is a transgender woman, but when she dies and she's actually murdered, basically, yes, yes. her family refuse to yes. bury her as a woman. Yes, and yes. so they remove it. Yes, and which it's is they, just they, terrific they t- take that that mm. back. But it, it's so, yes, and so I did I did write it. But when I I uh, mentioned to my agent that I was going, wanted to write this book, she was she was very, she was anxious about it and. And uh, she, I said, oh, come on, you know, this is 20, whatever it is. Mm. I, and I, New Zealand is a very, you know, very poor. And she said, the European publishers may never, they, you will put them off and they, they, may, they may drop you. And drop you? Drop you. Compl- the, absolutely. And, and the French publishers, for ex- just for example, I, I, Free and Grace, my first novel did really well in France and, and Second Chances. And then I wrote this one, and uh, the French did not buy it, and they have never published another one of my books. So uh, they never said that was why. I mean, maybe but she my was, other but this, books did You were warned. So she they, warned me. Yeah. She warned me. She, she so was it's really, a thing? It's a thing. It's, it's a thing. Effect. Yeah. And although it won, you know, it was, it was a Radio 2 book club mm. choice, and it was this and it was that, mm. it actually it ha- sold fewer copies mm. in fact so 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 although we sort of had a claim she was right and i don't regret it but i suppose if you ask me which in a sense am i proudest of i suppose it is that i say because i i did it anyway Good. and uh, I, I paid the price <laughs> luke lucian i think you did very well and we've only got a couple of minutes so is there any questions whatsoever or can we oh yes Interesting, interesting. It, it came out at the same time as Caitlyn Jenner came out. So I thought, this is great timing. Mm. Everybody's talking about this. And, and certainly, you know, I was interviewed by radio, um, I was on you know, Radio uh, 4 and Radio Scotland and Radio Ireland, and they were all very interested in it. But it didn't. And, you know, some people did buy it and some people have told me since it was their favourite book and some people have said, oh, my daughter's going through this and thank you for writing it. But I'm, do you know what? I'm sorry, but I'm not convinced that attitudes have changed quite that much in those few years. I, but I, I mean, I'd need to do a study on it. I think if you it to the young adult, um, Then it might. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point because uh, there are other books like the Golden, the Golden Boy, I think it is, that have that's that's perhaps perhaps an awful. If I'd made my protagonist young, a young yeah. adult, you know, as Rather it was, it's a, it's a yeah. yeah, it's a fifty fifty year old plus mm. person, a woman uh, who has lived as a man. I, I, I mustn't um, get the wrong pronouns, you know. Um, so maybe you're right. That's a good point. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. They all, they all read this. Well, they could have. They could. I mean, I'd be interested to know what they thought of the Secret Life of Luke Livingston. Mm. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank this you. has been an absolute and utter pleasure. It's been one of the sessions I've looked forward to. Oh, so much, thank Charity. you. Me too. Thank and you. Thank, thank you everybody. all for coming out on a really cold morning, and um, and I hope you've enjoyed the Hunter's Whites. <laughs> You've been drinking. You haven't had a chance. Now you can scout. <laughs> no, but I will now. I'm going to make yeah, up. Yeah. Because you're actually finished now for the, 
the festival? I am finished for the. It's been the most wonderful festival. I've got to say, the, I I love it. I love it here. I want to stay here, and thank you everybody for coming out. Oh, thank you, Charity. Thanks very Thanks. much. That was Charity Norman speaking to Tessa Nicholson at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that have attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do recommend it to friends and family. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.